Welcome to Brain Tools, episode 27. It's a Brains at Work series, and today we're in part four. We're talking about teamwork. Sam, what are we learning today? Today, you're going to be learning all about neural synchronization and team performance, about psychological safety and the SCARF model, plus brain, bringing teams' brains into sync. And to add to that, sociometrics, user manuals, Google's very famous Aristotle study, and as always, for practical brain tools to improve your team's effectiveness at work. Let's get into this. All right, um, we're back. Kieran, how are you, my friend? I am. I'm good. I've uh, people can't see this, but I'm actually rocking a mustache, which you've been giving me some very interesting feedback on. But that, besides that, completely flying. complimentary. You are, you are the, the greatest looking Asian porn star I've ever seen right now. <laughs> I'm very excited for for this week's episode. By the way, as we dig down into ep four of our brains at work series on teamwork, and today we're going to be talking about teams because we all work in teams. And it's a defining trait of successful people, their ability to work in teams. And there's actually some research out there that says one of the key traits of successful leaders in particular is their ability to build high-performing teams. Yeah, you're spot on. Like The research that also backs it up is from Ken Blanchard Companies, and they basically find that nearly 90% of workers say they spend half their day working in teams. So that means half is individual, half in teams. However, when you ask executives, 86% of them, and the employees say that the lack of effective teamwork and collaboration is a source of workplace failures. So we're doing a lot of teamwork. It's indoctrinated us from such a young age, yet we don't seem to be very good at it. We're doing all this work, but we're not doing it effectively. And teamwork is such a human endeavor that defines our entire economic world. So it's crazy to think that we're not working effectively in our teams. And there's lots of brain reasons for why, which we're going to cover a little bit later. Absolutely. And you know how we love, how we love uh, the stoic philosophers. Okay. Maybe me. It's maybe just me. Okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm fanboying over dead people from 2000 years ago. Soz. But Aristotle, he says, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And it's that classic Mm. thing that's always faced with us, which you're like, would you rather a champion team or a team of champions? And let's be frank, you want both. You want a champion team of champions. But the key thing that we want to really underpack, underscore rather, and unpack today is what are the foundational traits of effective teamwork? We've spoken about psychological safety and trust last week. We've spoken about productivity and resilience. That's fine. But at the end of the day, we're talking about a bunch of people working together, going to a common goal. Yep. And there has to be some form of underlying human model based on how we work uh, that defines those teams, right? You'd you'd bloody hope so. And I think that's probably where we start here, which is like, I know we always go definition-wise, but I'm going to start with a question, which is what actually is a team? And I think that's the one when we were researching for this, dive into, I didn't realize there was a distinction, Sam. There's two different things that people conflate. Can I share this with you? Yeah, please, because I I didn't know this at all, by the way. This is news to me. Yeah. Well, you've got two parts, which is like you've got work groups and you've got teams. And so work groups is where there's low interdependence. There's not that much interconnectivity, and it's based on organizational and managerial hierarchy. But when you compare that to teams, 
you'd assume, right? And this is true. There's such high interdependence. You're solving a problem. You're reviewing your progress for a specific project. And so it's basically saying there's disconnected parts that appear to be working on a project together versus actually working together. And I think that links very nicely with Matthew Lieberman's social book, Neuroscientist PhD, that mm. you know we've been, it's been hardwired into us. The reason why we survived for so many years and we were the right homo sapiens, so to speak, that came through um, was that we were able to communicate and obviously work in teams together. And wired to connect. I didn't even think about that distinction, but it makes a lot of sense even from a social organization perspective where you have structured teams in an organization formed by departments, groups, business units, but they don't actually resemble the often unstructured culture teams which formulate projects. My question is, how does that definition sit with you? What do you think about yeah, I, I think the thing about the definition, like it totally sits really well with me. And I think it informs that idea of like what is a team and what's the illusion of a team. And so I think when we look at something that I thought was, again, a very big project, it was Google's Aristotle project in 2012, where they looked at 180 teams and they identified five core traits of high-performing teams, again, specific to Google, but I think it's pretty clear these can be very transferable to any group, any team that are working on it. So can I share these with you, Sam? I would love it. And I love that Aristotle has already got two shout-outs so far on the podcast. Oh, my word. If you're listening to this, Aristotle from Beyond the Grave, we love you. Your work was fantastic. I think that I've, I'm, I'm now stumped now. I'm on, now on Aristotle <laughs> counter and instead of yeah. quote counter. So it's coming back for the five. In no particular order, actually in a particular order, psychological safety, dependability, structure and clarity, meaning and impact. And what I thought would be Mm -hmm. useful would just be to go through them and then get get your take on them. All right. So psychological safety, we've been through this before. It's basically the statement, if I make a mistake on our team, it's not held against me. I'm not going to be tortured for that. Dependability is when my teammates say they'll do something, they follow through with it. I can actually clearly see that they're going to do it. And this was a quote we spoke about last week, cognitive trust. You trust in their ability and you trust to get it done. Structure and clarity, our team has an effective decision-making process. We can actually get stuff done and we can make decisions. Meaning, the work I do for my team is meaningful to me and impact. I understand how our team's work contributes to organizational goals. Now, psychological safety being at the top of that, but those five being really important. Now, my question for you, Sam, is which of these speak most of you and link nicely with the neuroscience research? Those are the five great factors. And I think there are, there are already a couple that I can say link really nicely with the research. Let's talk about the first one, psychological safety, because A, we know it's a hot topic if uh, you read the HBR, if you're in management circles, <laughs> if you're in an organization, or if you uh, have ever been on LinkedIn before in your life. Because the reason we often don't work well with others is that we're all trying to protect ourselves. Yeah, And the question this we're thinking about is we wonder why other people get protective over their work. Maybe it's a coworker and they're defensive over their ideas in a meeting, or maybe it's a particular project that a team is really, really protective of even when it's going poorly. And the reason is we all kind of have this self-preservation orientation. Our brain's natural process is survival. It's to survive. It's to procreate. It's to keep us alive. And so this makes teamwork really, really difficult because as individuals, we're more inclined to involve, uh, focus on our own performance and our views, our work, our opinions, and survival because this is what's going to help us further propagate. This is what our brain is teaching us to focus on. And so when you think about that from the, the lens of psychological safety, whenever anything that we do comes under some form of criticism or 
indirect uh, opposition within our team environment, we feel like that psychological safety is threatened. Yeah, I, that makes so much sense to me because it's it's so hard to find that tension point though between the individual wanting to survive, yeah. but knowing that if you're in a group, you're more likely to hypothetically, and that that tension becomes really difficult. Yeah. Are there any particular frameworks or models that you came across for thinking about this? Because it is a hot topic and it's super important, but it's sometimes hard to actually look at in practice. There is, and this one's both useful for individuals contributing to a team and their team members, plus also team leaders. And it comes from the Neuroscience Leadership or the Neuro Leadership Institute and their leader, Dr. David Rock. And he has this SCARF model. And the SCARF model was established after doing meta-analysis and working with thousands of companies uh, on their leadership strategy. And it gives you a framework for thinking about psychological safety within your team, which is really, really important. And this framework is, number one, status, which is how important do people feel in their teams? How how much do they feel like their ideas are valued? Mm. Number two, certainty. And this goes to your point around structure and clarity, which is our concerns you know, we're concerned with certainty being able to predict into the future. Our team members feeling a sense of certainty over understanding what's expected, what's to come next, how decisions operate. Number three, autonomy. Is there a sense of control for people working within teams? We know, and we've talked about this ad nauseum in past episodes, that when we feel we don't have a sense of agency or control of our actions, this is inversely proportional and correlated to our stress response. So out of control or no control, more stress. Number four, relatedness, which is about our sense of safety and relation in the social group. Do we feel like our work is related to those around us? And the number five is fairness, which is our perception of fair exchanges within a team environment. And I guess the big takeaway, if you're anyone's listening to this, is that your teammates are all thinking about their position and, and their survival status within this social group, which is your team. And they're really thinking about their status, the certainty of what's coming next, their autonomy, what they can control, how they relate to the other people in your group and how fairly they've been treated. And if you can keep this in mind as you communicate and work with them, you're going to be able to create an environment of psychological safety, which makes it much easier for them to work with you, but also for you to work with them. Mm, this is hitting the nail on the head. Do I find so interesting about this, by the way, is that if you look at the SCARF model and you look at Google's Aristotle project, oh. there are so many commonalities. Like you can literally just like literally cross just them overlap, all together. Yeah. And that, like the thing that underscores all of this is communication. Right? Yes. Like we look at psychological safety, status, structure and clarity, meaning, impact, fairness, relatedness, all these terms. How on earth do you know what's going on in someone's head if you don't talk to them, if you don't <laughs> communicate well, like if you don't know, that's the biggest difficulty. And that is the foundation of this. Mm-hmm. And linking nicely to what you've just said, Sam, Sandy Pentland, have you heard of this great man before? I haven't heard of his work, actually. So this is an introduction. a bit of a red hot data scientist. And oh. he's from MIT's Human Dynamics Laboratory. And this blew my mind. I was speaking about it with uh, one of my housemates last night. The use yep. of electronic badges. So imagine I put an electronic badge on you on me and the rest of our mm-hmm. team, so to speak. Our team's obviously massive. There's about 55 of us and not two of us, I promise. Now, <laughs> we put them all on and what it measures is your tone. It's your voice, your body language, who you speak to, how mm-hmm. much you speak to them, all these really interesting data points. And they did this across multiple industries and it's a field called sociometrics. Have you heard of that one before? 
because I know I have <laughs> This is so new that, to me. That, that is so foreign to me, but it sounds like the nexus of biometrics and mm. social studies, which is really, really cool. Absolutely. And there were three main things that they identified that they were tracking in terms of high-performing or successful teams. And that was energy, the number and nature of exchanges you had with a fellow team member, engagement, which was the distribution of those exchanges. I was the leader just talking all the time and communicating, or was it equally distributed between all members of the team? And exploration, which was, did members of the team go outside that to other people or other teams within an organization? And I found that absolutely fascinating when I was sitting there. One, that you have this that could actually work, but two, particularly Mm -hmm. that distribution. Because you can imagine working at organizations where it's very top-down, very top-heavy, where the leader probably has the boldest line in this sort of dominance graph as well. Yeah, and even thinking about that from a team situation, you know those teams where the managers speak the entire time or you have the dominant personalities within the group speak and there's often some fragment in in individual contributors who don't feel like they have a voice, which we know is really important if we go back to the SCARF model, back to the Aristotle project. So my question is, I'm guess thinking, understanding this, like what are some of the key characteristics of good communication with this framework? So there's five main things that came from this. So when people were communicating in high-performing teams, it was equally distributed, as you yeah. to your point. So it wasn't as if like I would speak all the time in our Great Brain yep. Tools community or you speak <laughs> all the time. It was equally distributed, particularly during formal meetings. More, second one, mm-hmm. they'd face each other, which might seem like a really minor point, but when you've actually been in meetings, I'm sure you have as well, Sam, where they're people that are literally not communicating well and don't like each other, they don't want to face each other. Their body language is so close, yeah. it's negative. So it's a simple one of they face each other and they talk and they look into their eyes. Um, the third one is not dominated by leaders, as I said before. And the one that stood out to me a lot was side conversations. And they found that 50% of the communication or these, when the nodes or electronic badges were being activated, were happening in meetings, but 50% happened outside of it. It happened afterwards. And we always come down to like thinking, hey, let's have this formal meeting to communicate, but to think that mm. most of it actually happens after that fact. And that's what linked with outside conversations going to other teams. And the conclusion was really simple, Sam. 35% of the variation in a team's performance was based on the number of face-to-face exchanges amongst team members. So it was simply the quantity. And then you looked at the quality, which was how they were communicating and the energy they brought. Yeah, that is crazy. You can predict a team's performance purely on their face-to-face interactions. As nuts. It's it's just, I saw this. Oh, it's crazy, man. (laughs) I'm sorry, my mind's still blown. I'm really enthusiastic about this one because I'm just imagining it it taking place. It was across so many different um, industries. It was hospitals. It was call centers. It was schools. Mm. It was across the whole shebang. So, so many data points. And I suppose this allows people to be in sync, not the band, but synchronicity. (laughs) In sync, physically in sync because bringing that concept of face-to-face communication interaction to the brain and applying a bit of a neural frame for conceptualizing how it works. There's one point that I found really interesting in various bits of research, especially in the last four to five years, and that's great teams are literally in sync in the brain. They are literally in sync. And you know this, when, when everything's clicking and your team's firing on all cylinders and it feels like everyone in the room is sharing the same brain and all the ideas are coming from the same place and you all understand each other and you're maybe feeling the vibe or you just have that energy and everyone's feeling really, really good. Well, it turns out the reason for this 
is because if at that point in time we stopped the room and we opened everyone's head in the room and we looked at all your brains, the activation patterns within them, the release of neurotransmitters and neurochemicals would be almost identical. Basically, all your brains would look the same and that's because of neural synchronization. So it's really, really interesting to know that great teams are the ones that sync their brains and they look almost exactly the same as a result of the communication they experience. I'm reminded when we did uh, the episode on attention, we talked about flow and we talked about like individual flow, underestimating team flow. Because that when you said when everything's clicking, like everything's going, you know when you ask something of someone, they're going to give you the answer, everything's working beautifully. Um, That totally resonates. And I think as we always like to do, I assume, and I know you, are there any studies that you saw that validate sort of like line of thinking? Naturally. So there is not only one or two studies, but there's a massive body of work on this now. And the one I'm going to draw attention to in particular is a study published by uh, Lauren Numema. Uh, no, sorry, actually another one studied published by Diego A. Romero in 2021. And it was titled Interbrain Synchrony in Teams Predicts Collective Performance. And basically they went and scanned a whole bunch of uh, teams' brains while they were performing activities. And the teams that were more in sync, the ones that were more aligned, performed better on task. And similar outcomes have been produced in various other studies in even defense contexts. So we're talking about military bodies using synchronized brains to predict performance. Mm-hmm. And basically, the outcome of this uh, is that when teams work best, when their brains are in sync, when we are in sync, when, when you're in flow, as you mentioned before, when everyone's flying on all cylinders. And we're going to explain a little bit later how you can do this, but it's worth keeping in mind that in order to get your team to work the best way it can to, to operate uh, at its highest performance level, you have to get everyone in sync. Wow. I'm reminded, uh, I read this thing, this meta-analysis from the Warden School of Neuroeconomics, and they were talking about pre-rituals of getting in sync prior to actually doing yeah. it. And I think you might have seen this, right, where they did yep. like, they were literally like rocking on a chair together, getting in sync. Yep. And that like when they then solved a puzzle or a maze, they were 15% more likely if they were in sync prior compared to the control. And like your point there, I'm like seeing them being like, they're literally rocking on chairs. Yeah. Like, how does that even work? But literally being in sync. And it's a thing that it we does. underestimate when you really are in sync, you not only feel it, you do it. <laughs> you do it. You feel it. You do it. And you like you know it as well. You can see a team when they're in sync because it's like, damn, that's a well-oiled machine just operating, just all firing. Yeah. This this first section wraps it all up in terms of obviously the teamwork and the context behind it. And we obviously are going to get to some brain tools shortly. But as we always like to do, we want to make sure we're bridging the gap between all this knowledge and actually applying this knowledge. So for those listening, what are your key takeaways? I want you to get out yep. your note-taking app right now on your phone. If you've got a pen and paper right there, note down your one, two, or three key takeaways of what you've learned so far. Get it done in the break because right next, we'll have some brain tools for you to apply this in your life. Well done. You've made it this far. So if you are loving this brain tools episode, share it with one person you actually think can benefit from this episode. Welcome to the brain tools section of our brains at work on teamwork. Now, normally, Sam, we start with context. We want to provide the context. But today, we're going to start with some myths because I think in all the research and what we normally think about great teamwork, these two things might be mentioned. I think it's important we clear the air. We're doing some myth busters early on. Let's get into it. 
I really appreciate the Mythbusters and it's bringing back very nostalgically. So I'm all about it. We've got the two two major myths, my friend. The first one is that harmonious teams are more productive than unharmonious teams. And let's be frank, that's not true, right? There has to be conflict. There has to be disagreement in order to know what reality is so you can actually execute and get further and closer to the goal. That's my first one. Thoughts? I think it makes a lot of sense because everyone agrees with everyone else. You're never actually going to get to a, a truth or you, you're never going to have dissenting opinions, which is where new ideas come from. 100%. And the second one, bigger teams are better than smaller ones, right? Everyone will always say bigger is better, et cetera, et cetera, but that's not true. The more links there are between people in a team, the harder it actually becomes to manage. And the big rule here is like no double digits in terms of a team that you have. And this is really closely linked with Dunbar's number, who was an evolutionary psychologist and did a bit of statistical analysis mapping average primate brain size against the number of social connections that they could have. And in reality, and again, the number is slightly arbitrary in a way, but it says no human brain can have more than 150 stable relationships. And even that seems a bit large. But I think the thing to be mindful of, just because you've got more resource, you've got more team, doesn't mean you work effectively together. And those are my two. Strong two. Strong two and makes a lot of sense with what I've experienced in my own life when it comes to big teams being less efficient and harder to manage overall. And you think of it from a perspective of neural synchronization, like we talked about before, it's much harder to get 20 people in sync than it is five. Correct. Scale, right? And that brings us really nicely to brain tool number one, Sam, which is create your user manual. Cue suspenseful music. (laughs) What's a user manual for a person? So the best way I can probably frame this is my question for you, Sam. Like, say you get a new device. What do you do normally when you buy a new device? So number one thing would be to uh, turn it on and off and then proceed to not realize what I'm meant to do with it and then probably go have a look at the instructions. You'd hope so, right? So this is the key thing, right? You've got instructions that come with the new device. And without the instructions, look, we probably could figure out what to do with the device and how it's meant to work, but it'd be really, really difficult. It'd be frustrating and inefficient. This is the exact same thing when it comes to working with other people. Right? People don't explicitly oh. know how they like to work in a team necessarily, nor a manual to work with other people. And so what becomes really important here without that is you can't possibly work together well. So the solution is super simple. You want to create a user manual, your own user manual for yourself that outlines your personality, your working style, and have all other team members do this. So create your own user manual like how, well, how would you create your own user manual? What, what does that look like? Really, really good question. So the way that you would do this is obviously you need to have some, let's, I don't want to call it objective data, but you need to have another yeah. mirror with it. So a big five personality test is probably the most robust personality test. Please don't just go down and say, I'm going to do my MBTI because this is what everyone oh, does and it no. leverages confirmation bias. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's certainly not necessarily the best one. And it's the most robust because it looks at five key traits of openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, mm. and neuroticism. Now, Once you've done that and you've got a bit of a mirror to help your self-reflection, then that can aid the key questions that you want to have in this user manual. Now, Sam, here are the questions. How do you like to work? How do you not like to work? What are your working strengths and weaknesses? When you work well with someone, what does that look like? When you work poorly with someone, what does that also look like? And doing these questions has two layers to it. We talk so much about self-reflection and Socrates' quote of the unexamined life is a life not worth living. But you knowing how you want to go about that, how you do this, 
that means you can send it for feedback to your coworkers. Send it to your team members so they have an understanding and it might just simply confirm what they already knew, but it creates a really interesting dialogue and you can have a meeting with them to look at any potential clashes. And that was the first brain tool that I want to really level down on, which is create your user manual. So it's almost outlining how other people should be working with you and then sharing that around so everyone has a bit of an understanding of how you fit into the team and how they can work with you. Absolutely. And it's through self-reflection as we constantly look about. It's using your prefrontal cortex. It's thinking about that conscious, deep thinking that you can do that can uh, hopefully lead to better teamwork and better team outcomes. Mm. I've never done this. And I know we've actually talked about this before that I've never gone through this process. And I've heard many teams of creating this own user manual or even communication guides and, and then pushing that out to their team and how effective that's been. So I really, really like that brain tool. We've got the, thanks, mate. And it kind of, oh, you, you're welcome. I really do like it, and I'm, it's funny because came up in a conversation the other day in a team I'm in where I had one of my team members said we should probably put out our communication styles or yeah. our user manuals, so to speak. He said because I can already see there's a need for that, so use it because obviously it's got some practical use. And building on that is this brain tool too for those moments when communication does break down and you have some heat within the team, there's an argument or a disagreement. And brain tool number two is share the feels. What I mean by this is you can synchronize brains within your team by sharing what you think, how you feel and why so that other brains can couple to yours through that emotional synchronization process. And we know this is true because we can look at the work of Lauren Numenma in 2012 in Finland who stated emotions promote social interaction by synchronizing brain activity across individuals. So as we talked about before, just the, the, the act of stating how you feel and sharing how you feel allows other people to synchronize their brains with yours, understand where you're coming from, and therefore get on the same page in those heated moments. That's so important, as you've said, right? Because you need to understand the people that you're working with by understanding yourself first and foremost. But there's also the expression component. Right, people can't. Absolutely. If you let, if you allow people to guess what's in your head, they're probably going to guess incorrectly. And even if they do guess it right, you're probably not going to appreciate being told how you feel because you need to be the person that expresses it. So I'm thinking in like a, a team setting, right, workplace wise. How would you go about personally implementing this? I'll give you a personal example of when I did implement it in my last workplace, and I was having a disagreement amongst my team about uh, a direction of uh, this content project we were going through, and all I said was. Okay, team, listen, I'm feeling a little bit attacked from all sides here because I've put forward this idea and I'm actually really worried that if we don't go with this strategy, this project is going to collapse and it's going to reflect badly on me. And then the whole team turned around and was like, oh, we didn't realize you were worried about the project collapsing. Mm. Oh, no way. And suddenly the the script flipped flip from being, oh, no, we don't want to do your idea. This is our idea. This is what we think to being like, oh, I understand how you feel. Okay, let's try to reach some form of resolution. And I guess the practical implication then is if you're in one of these team situations where you do have a disagreement, simply stating, I feel like X because of X reason, and I'm actually really worried about X, Y, and Z, will give the other person more than enough cognitive context to synchronize with you to understand your emotional state and therefore help them work with you better. The key word here to highlight, and you've said it so well, is feel. Notice the difference, right? When I say, I think, 
versus I feel. And people immediately, when you say, I think it's an opinion, they're disagreeing with me, but I feel is that vulnerability that's coming across as you're saying. And when you said it in that situation, if a person comes at you and says, well, screw your feelings, they're clearly not being very compassionate and they're clearly not being very empathetic. And so the onus is on them to rectify their behavior as opposed to what you've done, which is I feel you're vulnerable. You put yourself out there. Love, love it. So much, so much easier. And it also takes a lot of pressure off them trying to understand how you actually feel it and how they should respond. So the, the wrap up is to take the guesswork out of teamwork in those situations by sharing how, your emotions to synchronize your brains. And that's brain tool number two. Yeah, it works perfectly. And we're constantly reminded, mate, of the amygdala, right? Like you come in hot. Oh, yeah. Um, people, as you said, from the, the very, very start was they have these alarm bells where it's self-preservation mode. You want to try and, you know, disconnect that, bring all the, the guards down. And that beelines beautifully into brain tool number three, which is team contracts. Team contracts. Mm-hmm. We're talking dollar signs here? Yeah, obviously, right? <laughs> Signing as a team team bonus, where we're at. Now, there was one piece of data that stood out to me, and it was from a book. It was called the Senior Leadership's yep. Team Book, and they surveyed 120 top teams across industries, including the military, hospitals, startups, and so on. And what was really interesting is almost every team said they had clear boundaries, but only 10% of them, less than 10%, agreed what those actual boundaries were. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I don't like that that big disconnect we spoke about of people yeah. thinking that is the case versus the actuality of it. And you're yeah. laughing. I feel like you're laughing for a reason. I feel like I'm <laughs> laughing for a reason because I, can't, I can, can't even count the amount of times where I've said, yeah, I've got really, really clear boundaries. And then I look at them and they don't exist. <laughs> and there's no definition there. Hey, I like invisible boundaries. They're communicated. And I think that aligns with what we've been talking about all along in terms of teamwork and communication, right? There's what you communicate, but there's also how you communicate. And when all team members don't have a baseline expectation, they will take the path of least resistance, which is to do nothing or to do probably the most ineffective thing. And that's ambiguity bias. So it's really highlighting this idea. We sign individual contracts. We sign it, dotted line, but what about team contracts? And so the solution becomes really clear is to draft a team contract in your team of six, 10, whatever it might be. Hopefully it's in that number and involve all the team members. Okay, so- we're drafting these team contracts. What do you put in them? What does it look like? So in practice, this is where your user manual becomes really important. That's been helping you obviously share your feelings in the right way. Basically, here's a, a bit of an outline. Each team member creates their five baseline expectations and they submit it to the leader because there is going to be a leader there. And this is leveraging the IKEA effect. And Sam, I know you love the generation effect, but people are more likely to be connect with something that they create than if someone else creates. And this is where we want to make sure of reactants, right? If you get a team contract and put it down to your team and say, hey, sign this, there's going to be a lot oh, more yeah. questions than, hey, I actually want you to create this team contract with me. And that's a complete flip on what's normally done because you're using agency. Any thoughts on that first point? Yeah, you know how I feel about agency and reactance and the backfire effect. And I'll simply say this, when your parents told you what to do as a kid, your first reaction was, go away. (laughs) This is exactly that. (laughs) Something a little bit worse. That was a very PJ reaction. So I I think that's really, really important to have that co-creation process. Absolutely. And then what the leader does is in this group, you collate all of these things and you share them all, unadulterated. Here is all the expectations that you have come up with yourself. And then you have your team meeting, right? And your aim here is to really clearly look at what the five, six, seven, whatever you end up deciding, obviously be mindful of how many expectations you want to have. But then of those expectations, and I'll give you an example a little bit, 
establish how you're going to A, communicate it in terms of when it's actually met, but also B, what does it look like when it's not met? Those examples to highlight what is good practice and bad practice becomes really, really important and creating rituals for these expectations. So Sam, an example I want to give you is I think this is on literally every company value board or expectation board, which is like, do what, do what you'll say you'll do, right? Which is linking with Google's Aristotle project of being reliable, right? Mm. Everyone sort of has this there, but what does the actual behavior and team practice look like? So it could be what this looks like is all meetings and with clear deadlines. Literally, this is a five minutes where we assign the deadlines and we assign it to people for our accountability and we look at what does success actually look like. And that's one way it could be in action. There's so many other examples, but that tangibility and agreeing on that becomes, yeah, I think super important in actualizing really effective teamwork. Yeah, and it's just setting the ground line, ground, like the, the ground, sorry, ground lines, setting the, the ground rules is what I'm trying to say, <laughs> stumble there, of what is expected, which we know is really important from a certainty perspective, um, the way the brain interprets uncertainty with the correlation to our stress response and uh, alertness system. It's really, really important having that, that contract and that structure in place because it gives people an understanding of what is expected of what will happen next. Absolutely. And you can't have expectations if you haven't decided on what those expectations are, nor have you communicated. Yeah. Like, at least it makes no sense. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you haven't said it, and I've experienced this before, unwritten expectations or unwritten rules are not rules because not everyone can be 100% clear on them. Everyone has their own inter- interpretation. Absolutely. And you, my friend, then have brain tool number four. Yeah, have brain tool number four. And speaking of in interpretation of situations and the way we process them is brain tool number four, which is create a mistake space to embed psychological safety in your team. And what this is, is you can build trust and psychological safety, my friend, by simply showing your team it's okay to make mistakes, that they're acceptable by sharing them in the team. And to make it extra fun, you can you can make it more enjoyable, a fun practice. But effectively, what this does is communicate to the team that it's okay to share your mistakes. It's okay to get things wrong because there are no social repercussions from within the team. And we know from the research coming out of uh, Dr. Amy Edmondson, a professor at Harvard Business School who studies effective teams, that across industries, psychological safety is the key element that differentiates high-performing teams from the rest. And psychological safety, in her opinion, is defined as a sense of confidence that your team will not embarrass, reject, punish you for speaking up and sharing your ideas, questions, concerns, and mistakes. So by sharing your mistakes and creating a mistake space from the team, you're actually creating a psychological safety mechanism within that team. Yeah, that links so well with one of the myths we spoke about earlier, right? Which is like a harmonious team is a productive team, right? Which is, you know, right. the, the ultimate myth, right? Because when I hear the word safety, I'll be honest with you, I think I feel safe, secure, everything's going to be okay. But the reality is psychological safety is a deeper level than that. It's like I trust that if I communicate something bad or something that might you might not agree with, that I'm not going to be chastised or crucified for that opinion, for that belief, for that fact. Absolutely. It's you will be accepted even if you have an opposing viewpoint that this team is safe for you to be in regardless of the opinions you hold. Love it. So in practice, as we always say, can you give some examples in the workplace of how this might look? Yeah, really, really simple here. We'll take it from the the perspective of a team leader. If you are managing a team, 
you can create a mistake sharing practice. Uh, one way could be to embed this into your Monday, Monday morning stand-ups and just have mistake Mondays. Share what you messed up last week. By the way, last week, my biggest mistake was X, Y, and Z. You communicate this to your team every Monday and you make it a fun thing you can make a joke about and share about. Something that's a lot safer to make mistakes and share them in the team. If you're an individual contributor, if you're just part of the team but not leading the team, one thing you can do, and I have done this personally in the past, is make a habit each week of sharing one thing, one mistake you made with your team publicly. Because not only does this help embed that state of psychological safety within the team, but according to some of the research we talked about last week on trust, so go check that out, it actually helps build trust and perception of competence. Yes, admitting mistakes builds perception of competence with those others around you while also giving them permission to do the same. And that's my brain tool number four, which is create a mistake space by admitting your mistakes in the team to create psychological safety. Yeah, I'm loving all these brain tools because they all look at what we talked about before, communication, right? You've got to know how we're going to, like what are the rules of engagement we communicate? Then we've actually got to communicate it. We've got to have the space for communication as per what you've said. Um, Yeah, it all works together for effective teamwork and getting more stuff done to the goal that we want to get to. Totally agree. And we'd be remiss to talk about communication without re-communicating the four brain tools we just covered as a recap. So let's go back up to the top. Let's do it. So brain tool number one is creating your user manual. In the same way when we get a new device, a new gadget, you hope you read the instructions so you can get it done. It's the same thing when you work with a team and other people. We need to understand what their working styles are and predominantly you need to understand what yours are. So ask yourself these questions after doing a personality assessment like the big five. How do you like to work? How do you not like to work? And most importantly, what does work look like when it's actually humming? What's that team flow that we spoke about? And doing that means that everyone's going to be on the same page with how everyone likes to work and how you can best work as a team. And that's brain tool number one, create your user manual. And when you've got these user manuals, you're working together, you're still going to have situations where there is conflict, where there is tension and disagreement. And in those situations, use brain tool number two, which is share the feels. Say, I feel X because of X, Y, and Z, which is making me worried about Z. And the result of sharing your feels Sharing your emotions will synchronize your brains with your teams, help them understand where you're coming from and make it much easier for you all to resolve your problem. And that's brain tool number two, share your feels. Which again, lines up perfectly with brain tool number three of team contracts. If you're sharing the feels, that needs to be a really, really important part of how are we actually going to communicate and what are our expectations on communicating? And so make sure that you leverage agency. If you are the leader or you are the team member, make sure everyone's sharing what their expectations or values are on how you're going to work as a team. Make sure you sign off on them, leverage that agency and make sure everyone's on the exact same page because if you can do that, then you can ritualize that exact behavior, which means it's going to have an impact. Self-directed neuroplasticity 101 for teams. Brain tool number three, team contracts. And you've got these team contracts in place. The last thing you can do to improve your team cohesiveness is brain tool number four, which is create some mistake space. How do you do this? If you're an individual, 
share a mistake each week publicly, put it in your Slack channel, put it in your Teams channel, put it wherever you is, but show that it's okay to share mistakes. Or if you're a team leader, create an opportunity and a time in the week where team members can share things that they've got wrong, share their mistakes so you can normalize that mistake sharing process and show that there are no social repercussions because doing this creates psychological safety, which is the basis of high-performing teams. And that's brand tool number four, create a mistake space. Perfect. And that is coming to the end of Brains at Work episode four, or part four rather. If you haven't checked part out four. the previous ones, productivity, resilience, and trust, go check that out. But as we always like to do, and you probably know this, what's our 80-20 for the day, Sam? So my 80-20 for the day is great teams are in sync. Great teamwork is synchronization fire sharing. By sharing emotions, by sharing thoughts, by sharing goals and objectives. And so to work well in teams, focus on sharing. Absolutely. Beeline's perfectly in what I'm talking about because if you're in sync, you're communicating, but a failure of communication is a failure of teamwork. So Mm. understand your team members, understand how you communicate, and then ritualize communication. Because as we spoke about with Dr. Sandy, he talked about the number of exchanges you have being correlated with the performance of the team. And that is my 80-20 for the week, Sam. All right, and that wraps up what was a really, really interesting and hopefully a very, very useful episode on teamwork and the brains. I feel like I've learned a lot personally. So I thank have you. Too. For that. Well, hey, if we're implementing stuff, Sam, I suppose uh, our next uh, Monday meeting we're going to be implementing all of this oh, yeah. to get the rocket ship that is Brain Tools going up. <laughs> Absolutely, and thanks again for joining us on this journey. That's all we've got for this week. That's bye from me. That's bye from me as well, and see you next week. There we go. That's episode 27 in the books. And if you're right here right now, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, you found it valuable, there is absolutely one thing you can do to support Sam and I on the Brain Tools journey. And that is to find that little share button, find that little share button, share it with your coworkers in a WhatsApp group on a Slack channel. No matter what, sharing is caring. And we promise your coworkers will love it if you love it. And if you are enjoying this Brains at Work series, we've got part five coming up for you next week on leadership. We'll be talking about the practical brain tools around leadership and brain science, but stick with us. You can find more of our content at Brain Tools Podcast on all socials, LinkedIn, Instagram, or at braintools.mn.co. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.